Class, please be quiet. Any special message for all the kids watching at home? Stay out of trouble. Welcome to the RPG Academy Network presents Film Studies. Welcome classroom for another the RPG Academy Film Studies. I am Kalum. And as usual, I will be your teacher of foreign cinema. Today we're going to talk about The Others, or Los Otros, a movie from 2001 directed by Alejandro Amenabar. But let's see who we have here as our temporary faculty members to talk about this movie. Helen. If it's a film school, then I would like to take the position of being a supernatural film teacher because that's my fave, that's my special thing to do. I like the films about possessions and ghosts and things like that, especially when they're interesting metaphors for other things. That sounds handy. If we've got a problem with a possession, we can send students to you. It's perfect. <laughs> yes. Regarding the things that I actually do in real life, you can find me working with The Rusty Quill, which is a podcast company based in London, or you can find me doing sensitivity consultation and editing for books, tabletop RPGs, and games. And congratulations, today you reached with the Rusticool, I believe, 5,000 followers on Twitch, something like that? Yes, yeah, I mean, that's Michael Lebeau's, he's our head of video, and he's very excited <laughs> about it. In fact, he's a very excitable person, in general. I got 53 followers on Twitch, so I would be excited about 5,000. <laughs> It's probably because of the Magnus Archives, partially, because it's so massive now. And that's where we get a lot of our clout from. So we'll see what happens once the uh, once the series ends. If people are into horror, they should go check out the Magnus Archive. It's got a great reputation in that field. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> There's a lot of other excellent podcasts about horror to check out there and other topics. And uh, Danny is with us today. Could you introduce yourself? What type of teacher would you be? My name is Danny Roth. I write around the internet. I do media criticism and analysis. I am the co-host of a now New York Times recommended podcast Ooh, wow. called Song vs. Song. I mean, we knew that New York Times was going downhill, <laughs> but this is really, they discovered bottom. <laughs> Welcome. Gosh, what kind of teacher would I be? I guess I would be, I'd be like John Carpenter, right? Like, since I do a song podcast, I would, and he does a lot of music you know, in addition to creating his films, he also creates a lot of the music. I guess I would do a music-based podcast as pertains to film. And I would also be a, um, what's the version of Master of the Dark Arts, but you just make fun of J.K. Rowling all oh. day. <laughs> Justified. Uh, I guess it would be appropriate to name her the one who is not named anymore. There you go. You got it. We need a little content warning. The first warning of them all, really, if you haven't seen this movie, please go check it out. That's my recommendation. I totally enjoyed watching it. But spoiler alert, this episode's going to be full of spoilers <laughs> right from the beginning. And it's kind of those movies which can be spoiled. People might still enjoy it regardless, but the spoil is a part of the movie, I think. So... Content warning, spoiler alert, then the topic of mental illness is quite central to the movie and what will be discussed. Death, spoiler alert. 
again, go if you have not seen the movie yet. Suicide, child abuse, and death of children. But I was happy to realize that it was, as far as I can tell, no victimization of women, which is a first on the film studies, which is very sad. We watch a lot of old movies, and I realized that a lot of movies I used to love had often this aspect in them, uh, which is quite dreadful. Yes, not in the movie, just in the meta text. But we'll (laughs) we'll talk about Mm. we'll talk about Nicole Kidman. And why she almost quit. She almost didn't do this for a very particular reason. But we could talk. Yes, it's interesting. I look forward to hearing that. Explicit language in this podcast. I think we'll try to avoid it. Maybe it will show up. (laughs) Since it's not safe for work anywhere, I won't be too first on that. Uh, But yeah, you've been warmed. (laughs) And it's like 9pm for me. So I'm well past my watershed. (laughs) Parental advice is recommended. We always start with, what's your one-sentence review tag which would look nice on a poster, and what's your five-star rating? The others is the other turn of the 21st century ghost story with a twist ending, the one that is not The Sixth Sense, and uh, but it's better than The Sixth <laughs> Sense. I said it. So I would give it four and a half stars. I would say I'm more likely to rewatch The Others than The Sixth Sense, mm. but I'm afraid it's because of other movies by Night Shyamalan, but <laughs> more about that maybe later. So this was like half joke. I put working class people no more than you think because I can't help but bring my politics into everything that I do. I'm sorry about that. But it's also true for the film. <laughs> it's damn true, yeah. <laughs> and I would give it four stars out of five. And uh, my own would be a mystifying riddle is brought to light. Ooh. Five stars. I totally enjoyed it. Although I do have some criticism. Hmm. We're generous on the show, so I am going for five stars. It's time for me to give a little summary of the movie. Again, spoiler alert. Not only I will spoil this movie in terms of events which take place in it, but I will also spoil it with my absolutely dreadful humor. (laughs) So if you haven't seen the movie, again, go check it out. No children. Are you sitting comfortably? (laughs) Find yourself a comfy sofa, grab some snacks, maybe a hot cocoa. All good. Then, I'll begin. Grace Stewart, played by Nicole Kidman, awakens from a nightmare. This well-dressed but austere lady lives in a big mansion surrounded by foggy gardens and woods. Someone is at the door. Meet the aging Miss Bertha Mills, the old... Edmund Tuttle, and a younger mute girl called Lydia. They are respectively played by Fionula Flanagan, Eric Sykes, and Elaine Cassidy. Grace rejoiced. Ah, you must be here to apply for the job, I advertised. We sure are, replies Bertha. Grace takes the trio on a visit of the old manor and offers a bit of exposition. The previous staff disappeared overnight, nothing to worry about. I live alone in this big manor, with two children, since my husband left for the war. He's probably dead now, but please don't mention it. Please make sure you always keep all doors closed at all time, whenever you enter or exit one room. It sounds a bit OCD, but Grace is the boss. All curtains must be kept closed at all time. It's not ominous at all. Now, time for you to meet my two little darlings. (laughs) I keep them locked in this bedroom. You know, like good parents do. Wakey, wakey. 
after another small slice of creepiness, we are finally introduced to Anne, age 11, and Nicholas, age 7. They are played by Alakina Mann and James Bentley. Sweet little children. They seem to be alright, considering their circumstances. Grace explains, You see, my children suffer from a rare disease which makes them highly sensitive to light. Oh, the tree servant should have replied. <laughs> you know, starting with this information would have made own experience much less awkward. A routine sets in at the manor. Berta is a new nanny for Anne and Nicholas, on top of taking care of cooking and the housekeeping. Edmund rakes leaves in the garden. Lydia practices social distancing. However, at some point Grace confronts Berta. Turns out her job ad was never posted in the newspaper. How did they know about the job then? Berta answers that she just assumed there might be jobs for them at such a big house and that they actually were knocking the doors of random manners to ask for a job. <laughs> Grace agrees that it <laughs> seems legit. Side note, shout out to all the unemployed millennials in 2020 who have parents who think that's how you find a job. As part of the routine, Grace subjects her two children to some very strict homeschooling. It includes a good share of moral lessons and Bible reading. You know, the light-hearted part, like with children ending up in limbo hell. However, it turns out the little Anne likes to question things. She even shows some mild signs of being an agnostic, if not, dare I say, being a smart-ass. What do you find so amusing? Those children were really stupid. On top of that, She shares her free time between implying that her mother might be a bit cray-cray or telling scary stories to her little brother. They go about in white sheets and carry chains. How do you know? Because I've seen them. This earns her to get punished by her mother on several occasions. Punishment often sees the children isolated in separate rooms, followed by some confusion regarding who the hell is making noise followed by the noise-hating Grace rushing around the manor. Is the little Anne lying when she tells about strangers lurking in the manor? She claims to have seen a bunch of them. One is a young boy named Victor who told her that this was his house. Another was a blind old lady who Anne claims to have seen 14 times. After finding out that Victorians loved keeping Instagrams of dead relatives, After much piano music, door banging, searching the manor for intruders, Grace confusing Anne with an old lady and trying to strangle her, Grace has had enough. She runs off outside to go fetch a priest. I need the place exorcised like it's 1973. Edmund asks Berta if Grace will be alright. She answers, whatever, fuck, am I right? <laughs> He conquers, word. Grace gets lost in the fog. But suddenly... It's the ninth doctor. No, I mean, I mean, I mean, it's her lost husband, Charles. He's played by Christopher Eccleston. He somehow survived the war. They both return to the manor. After a few days or weeks, Charles decides to head back to the front. Wait, isn't, isn't the war over? Grace finds out in the morning that Charles has left. However, there is no time to consider the merits of long-distance relationships. Anne and Nicholas are screaming. 
Grace rushes out of her bedroom. She finds all of the curtains are gone. The old manor is brightly lit with sunshine. Grace manages to secure her children in a darkened room. She confronts Bertha, Edmund and Lydia. But Bertha is very casual. Where are they? What? The curtains! Chill Grace, you're too intense. Shotgun in hand, Grace throws the three of them out of the manor. The night falls, Grace searches her servant room and finds an Instagram featuring the corpses of the three of them. Hashtag no filter. Meanwhile, Anne and Nicholas decide to flee into the night to find their father in the woods. Instead, they find the graves of Bertha, Edmund and Lydia. Look out! They are behind you! Bertha yells, There's a misunderstanding! You should read the tenancy agreement! Confused, the two children find their way back home, where their mother has them hide in their bedroom. After more running around and more attempts by Bertha to spookily explain herself, it's time for the children to scream again. Grace rushes to the children's bedroom. She opens the door and... Spoiler alert! A group led by a blind old lady is there, sitting around a table, playing D&D or something. No, wait, it's some Ouija board, satanic panic stuff. Hold on a minute! Dun dun dun! Grace, Anne and Nicholas are the ghosts! Dun dun dun! The old psychic asks, Tell me, children, why did your mother kill you both with a pillow before handing herself with a shotgun? Dun dun dun! Grace goes into a rage, shreds papers and gives the psychics their money worth of good old table turning. Things settle again in present day but not quite present day, where a group of ghost whisperers are recovering from their experience. A woman among them has had enough. We're leaving this place first thing in the morning. This manor gives nightmares to my little Victor, and there is no waitrose in the neighborhood. <laughs> the next morning, the present day, but not quite a present day family, leaves the manor as a ghostly grace looks at them from a window. Only the little Victor seems to have noticed. The manor is put to sale. Bertha confirms the new situation to Grace. There are no housemates. Sometimes the living are a bit noisy. But hey, whatever, at least we don't pay rent and we cannot be evicted. The end. So that was a, a serious mistreatment of this movie. It was pretty accurate. Shortening a long story like that, uh, you need a few breeders in there. So... What are the things or moments that we enjoyed and didn't enjoy as much in this movie? For me, the best thing is actually something that I don't think I had picked up on when I saw it when it first came out in 2001. But it's the fact that they repeatedly make mention that it is set shortly after the German occupation of the Channel Islands. And the whole reason that all this stuff is happening is because of that. You know, they never really say it outright, but this situation where Nicole Kidman kills her children, they talk about the idea that, you know, the lights and the electricity they don't have because the Germans always turn them off anyway, so they just didn't bother. She says, in five years, I'd never let a German in this house. So to me, it always was this idea that they were about to finally get in, and she thought, well, my kids are about to die anyway, so she just kills them and kills herself. I don't they never really say it explicitly in the text, but it seems clear to me. And what I think is so great about that information once you have it is that you realize that these ghosts exist because it's a bit of a black mark on England 
who likes to spend a lot of time thinking about how they're the heroes of World War II, which is all well and good. However, they abandoned these people, and these people suffered a great deal, and many of them died and were left in a situation where there was, you know, it's a Sophie's choice. You could either fight the Germans and die and potentially prolong the war, not knowing what's going on anyplace else, or you could go along with the Germans, in which case you're a traitor. So I think that when you think about that, it transforms the entire story and it gives the idea of them being ghosts a very specific purpose. It's to remind people that, hey, this is a thing that happened and you cannot forget it lest it be repeated. So that is the thing that like it's always in the ether. Like Every once in a while it bubbles up just a little bit, but the fact that that's where it's set, I think, is just wonderful. It's interesting because the director is from Spain. First of all, I consider myself a bit of a history buff, not, not a specialist in, a, in any way, but I've been into World War II history and the aspect of that history, which are lesser known, I was aware of. Despite coming from a, a country somewhat close to the Channel Islands, I was totally unaware of that history. On top of that, I was saying the director is Spanish. A bit of history which is barely talked about in history classrooms across Europe is the Spanish Civil War. And I'm well aware of all many horror stories shot in Spain tell that story, why you won't see that many biopics or historical fiction or nonfiction set in that era. So it's been a, a way for the Spanish people to tell their story, to do it through fantasy and horror. So it's interesting to see a story which is not Spanish, but in a similar way is untold, being told somewhat between the lines in a similar way. It would be uh, about the Spanish Civil War, but a story which is from, from yeah. Great Britain. I will say that like, as someone who like grew up here, I genuinely didn't know anything about the fact that the Nazis invaded Jersey like at all for a really long time. Like It wasn't part of what we were taught. I'm from America. They don't teach us anything. So I understand. <laughs> I feel like in the UK and the US, the education system is very specific about the things that it does not teach us. So, um. Yeah, you'd be surprised in Europe and France, Belgium, of the stuff which are not to. Even as a teen, uh, I was a bit into history, uh, through figurine painting and this sort of thing. You know, uh, you would make mm -hmm. model tanks painting, but you know, the, the people who do that, they are into history and you, you find out about stuff this way. Although there are some dark corners to that hobby as well. But I remember being in a history class and being told the lesson by the history teacher, who was not even a, a bad teacher. He said, okay, World War II, uh, appearance of dictatorship, Germany, Italy, Soviet Union. And you're like, uh, Spain, Portugal. <laughs> and I was really shocked that they would not mention a dictatorship, which remained till the 80s. So there's a lot of stuff. We don't talk about it, and it's great when this brought up in movies, and it's weird that those places often end up being yeah. horror movies. Well, I mean, I guess it's not surprising that people would pick the setting of war to write their horror films about in. It's one of the most horrific things that humans can do to each other, kill each other en masse. Yep, and it's also quite brilliant that they made this choice that in other horror movies, the idea is that in light, there is safety, yeah. and in darkness is the danger. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Well... Here is a horror movie where the pitch is, it's the light that's dangerous, 
And doesn't that fit into this subtextual narrative of nobody wants to shine a light on this thing that happened. And so that's what the whole movie is about. So it's again, like it's a visual gimmick, but it suits a really specific storytelling element that's wonderful. And the same thing with the sound. I don't know if anybody will have had the chance to watch it in a sort of like a 5.1 or a 7.1 or whatever it is. But they do this interesting thing where most of the stuff is very front and center in the front three channels. But if the ghosts or the the living, as it turns out, are talking and it's not Victor, they are always coming out of the back channels, right? They're kind of sneaking up on you from behind, which is a really another, like, I don't know if it links into narrative in any great way, but it certainly does. It scared the shit out of me because I'd forgot part of my language. I had completely forgotten that they did that. And so the first time it happened, I almost jumped out of my chair. <laughs> I think that the use of light, that's one of the things that I wrote down. It's one of the things I really liked in terms of not so much as a metaphor, but just the literal camera work. I really loved the shots of Nicole Kidman's character walking around with the lamp. That's the movie poster, I think. It's her and her her lamp, and that's all you can really see, if I remember correctly. I think that the idea that it ties into the subtext of it being, like, you hide from things in the dark, basically. I really agree that that is part of the reason that they chose that, in terms of, like, the light being a metaphor. Regarding what we're saying about history, while I was trying to look up for trivias and stuff like that, I ran into a quote by the actress who plays Berta, Mm who's from Ireland. She said, not about the movie, but People think we, the Irish, are such great talkers, but there is so much silence in Ireland about certain issues. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I thought it's really fitting, not specifically just to the Irish, but with the theme of the movie of bringing up stuff to light and discussing events which people are reluctant to discuss. Yeah. I mean, in the case of Ireland, I think it's not just that people don't talk about it, but also that it's actively silenced if they do sometimes. But I'm not. I'm not an expert on the history of Ireland. What well, me neither. But again, again, I'm not Spanish. But the situation has been also silenced in many ways. I'm from Belgium. There's a lot of stuff which are not discussed also in Belgium regarding the past. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's more sort of, of a. How uh, to say that? Yeah, it's not government enforced, but it's a weird cultural dynamic not to discuss things. I mean, the, mm. all European countries are a lot of stuff they should be discussing uh, mm. way more. Uh, yeah. Coming back, to, <laughs> I mean, yeah, uh, coming back to the the movie, what I really, really appreciated is going to tie into tabletop roleplaying games. It's how there's very little, if any, overt supernatural stuff going on. Till the very end, I was expecting that the twist could be that there was no ghost, there was nothing, there was kind of a conspiracy against Nicole Kidman, something was happening, maybe there was something in the medication, and the movie was made well enough that until very, very, very far, there's nothing really which couldn't be explained as someone in the cupboard doing things. I really appreciated that you don't see an evident ghost at the window. I mean, I'm watching Bly Manor right now. I'm right at the beginning. Mm. You see characters. Of course, in the way it's story told, you could think it's the character who see those other individuals. They are not really there. But you still see that while here, you don't see any supernatural elements at all for quite a long time. 
Yeah, I've, I've watched I've watched all of Blind Manor. I literally just binged it over the weekend. <laughs> no, no spoiler. Just keep an eye on the background because it does the same thing as The Haunting of Hill House with having people standing around looking spooky. See how many you can spot. <laughs> Say hello to the clock repairman in the, the Haunting of Hill House. Oh, yes! This one is the real hero of that show. I want to find out everything about this guy. <laughs> Danny, was there anything you did not enjoy as much? Really, my only criticism is that I think that the decision to pitch our three people that are the help, or however you want to think of them, there are moments where they choose to have them seem very sinister in a way that, like, there's nobody around for this where, you know, where she's like, to make sure that you cover up the graves, (laughs) you know, it's sort of like um, the end of The Good Place where the guy who was running the bad place is trying to get back to normal, but no matter what he does, like he's like, oh, I think you'll find that things will get better very, very <laughs> soon. You know, like, it's got, like, and I'm like, what? like, in that it's funny, but, like, in this it's just odd. It doesn't, yeah. whatever that happened, it would take me out of the narrative a little bit. I've been listening to this podcast called Witch Please. It's quite an old one now from about 2015, 2016. It's, um, It's about the Harry Potter books and movies, and it's two literary academics going into like all the problems and sort of very interesting literary critique about it. But they were saying how in the movies, they think that one of the marks of a good actor is that they can lie, and it's believable that someone in the film would believe them, but the audience can tell that they're lying. I think there's a similar principle in terms of maybe one of the signs of a good horror actor is that you can seem sinister, but in a deniable way so that it can leave the audience in two minds instead of immediately going, oh, that's suspicious. (laughs) Yeah, and also the thing is that once you get to the end of it, it really just feels as though they did it to throw you off course. Yeah. And that also, because they're not, they're not evil, there's nothing evil about them in the slightest, so why did we we have them talk like this on occasion? Yeah, it feels a bit cheap, doesn't it? (laughs) It does, it's really one of the only things. Now, Callum, I feel like you had written in the notes at some point that you had said some thoughts about Nicole Kidman being the star of the film, yeah. uh, her and, uh, and Chris Eccleston. I wanted to hear you talk about that because I think we have a little bit of a point-counterpoint. <laughs> I don't want to be unfair. I don't mean to imply that Nicole Kidman didn't do a good job at all. It's just, um, I don't know, maybe it's related to the genre of the movie. I'm more used in horror movie to have actors who are not as big, a bit less famous, and I, and I like that. I like that genre movies are a place for actors to shine and maybe, you know, launch a new career or mm. get revealed even when they're older to show a bit of their talents. And I, I was a bit distracted by the fact that I had Nicole Kidman on screen. <laughs> I didn't see the movie in the best conditions either. I was not in theater. didn't have a 5.1. Uh, it was... Day and my apartment would be terrible for the characters because except the bedroom, I cannot bring darkness inside. So the conditions were not great, you know, but still I was distracted by Nicole Kidman. It's part of the charm, but I think it supported that she's a Grace Kelly figure. The whole movie had a very, I told, still had a grain. I think it was filmed on film, so they use a lot of natural light, so you can tell, but it gives kind of a Hitchcock nature, even to the image, there's a lot of Hitchcock feel in the movie. Yes, you're right. I mean, our yes. character is named Grace Stewart, 
I mean, that's Grace Kelly and James Stewart. I'm, 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 I'm certain of that. I didn't read a trivia about it, but I'm certain that her character is a homage to Grace Kelly and James Stewart, who were regular actors of Alfred Hitchcock. And then you got Eccleston, an actor I really wish to see in more things. Yeah, he's great, yeah. I think he's great in the role, but he's got so little time in there. He barely mm. appears. I mean, I think Stanley almost features more in some movies. It's really unfair to him and unfair to Nicole Kidman. But when he showed up, you know, that was my stupid little joke in the summary. Uh, I saw the Doctor for a second. I'm not even a big mm. Doctor Who fan. I didn't see that many of it. But, uh, you know, to some extent, as far as I'm, I love that the movie uh, brought me to learn a bit about the Channel Island, I think myself would have been more immersed if it would have been shot in Spain. I think it would have worked in Spain. That's what's in interesting in a way. But uh, yeah, I was distracted by Nicole Kidman. I thought she did really well. I just looked her up and it looks like she was born in the US. I'm not a good judge of accents, but I thought she had a really good received pronunciation thing going on since she was clearly like upper middle class. She had a good posh English voice. I thought she did well. I thought she did well. Yeah. I think she did, but still, it was a steep slope to climb, in my view. And <laughs> I'm going to give you, what What do you need to get up a steep slope? What's a good instrument? I've never climbed a mountain before. <laughs> a, a, a walking stick? A walking stick, <laughs> Okay, great. I mean, I'm very lazy. Anyway, so I'm going <laughs> to, this is it. If you watch it again, and this is, a, The Others, I believe, is a movie that you can get something watching over and over again, especially once you have some of this additional information. This is one of the two metatextual elements of this film that's really fascinating and terrible, but I think impacts the way I view Nicole Kidman's performance. So she almost didn't do this movie because she was in the middle of a divorce from Tom Cruise. Oh. And Tom Cruise was trying to maintain complete control over their children. Ooh. So Nicole well. Kidman in the midst of trying to protect children within this narrative, and, and as we know how that turned out, in real life, she was fighting for her life to be able to have her children in her life at all. So I think when you know that, when you're armed with that information, it really comes across in the performance, in my mind. I think you're right, yeah. There's actually, <laughs> this is a complete tangent. But there are some excellent pictures out there of Nicole Kidman after her divorce is finalized. And she looks so, so joyous. It's like the best thing you've ever seen. She's got like her arms raised and like her mouth is open. It's like she's roaring. Yes. But sorry, that's just that's a quite an iconic picture that I've seen around. And I didn't know that this film was during that period. Yeah, it's in the dark time before she kind of manages to find her way to the light in real life. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, for me, knowing that, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll say this, Callum, when I first watched the movie, I think I also, because she was such a big star, yeah. yeah, especially at the time, that it had an impact. I also, you know, my interest in horror movies is usually that you're seeing a bunch of people that were in just one thing or are very specific to horror. And so there's an element of that and an element of the way that I watch horror movies in general. And so when a big name comes in, when they're a big name, that's strange. Because, yeah, I mean, yeah. you can look and say, you know, well, Jennifer Aniston was in Leprechaun and Renee Zellweger was in Texas Chainsaw, the, the Next Generation or whatever it was called. And, 
you know, and McConaughey is in one. And, you know, if you go down the line, almost every single famous actor, if you go far enough back in their career, you'll find a weird old oddball horror movie. But that's different because they weren't famous yet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a shame. I really don't like how horror is seen as like the poor man of the film industry because. I don't know. It's because they can often be so cheaply made that people are like, oh, well, it's not a real film. And I think maybe that's, I mean, I guess that's why better known actors and actresses don't tend to go for them that much. But it's funny because that's an issue I have also with theater here in London. Mm -hmm. The live theater I'm used to in France and Belgium, you've got actors who are somewhat famous in theater and you see them several times in different plays. Here in London, the actors you see in the play are actors who are already famous. You see the, the John Boyega, the Daniel Radcliffe, you see all those people and it's amazing for them. And I think it, it really helped them develop their craft. But if I go to see a play, it distracts me. And at the same time, I feel like, come on, this should be somebody else who doesn't have the chance of having your stature and be in large picture. I wouldn't mind as much if the rotation of actors in the big movies was a bit more dynamic. It is a bit more nowadays than it used to be 10 years ago. But yeah, we're talking about meta things a bit about the movie. And I believe, Helen, you wrote down uh, what was your negative point about this movie. It comes very early in the movie. Oh, right, that it's a Weinstein movie? <laughs> 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 it's uh, Bob and Harvey Weinstein? Yeah, I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, ah. I just I never want to see that name again. <laughs> I was happy I didn't pay for the movie. I found the DVD in the street, so that's how I watched it. So at least I'm not contributing <laughs> to uh, whatever they get from that. Something that I would like to maybe open up a discussion a bit is something that I, did, I didn't write down in the document, but I do want to mention is that I wasn't a big fan of the score of the music. It felt really sort of overwrought to me, but I think maybe it was because they're going for like an old-fashioned feel, like a period feel. There were lots of like big strings and stuff like that. At the same time, when I was watching the movie or when I finished it, usually when I do my summary in the episode, I like to put sound effects and the music from the movie. But <laughs> when I finished it, I was like, actually, I did not remember much stuff I could use. There were a lot of silent scenes, more than I expected. Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember having any strong feelings about the music one way or the other, I like I said, I think the soundscape of it, if you're able to watch it with a full theatrical presentation, wow. you get something out of it. It's not, you know, it's not overwrought or, or too omnidirectional, but um, it does kind of have those moments where, you know, it'll pull a thing from behind you, which is, I think, very effective. But yeah, I, I don't think that the music is particularly memorable. You know, we were talking about the Mike Flanagan stuff, Haunting of Bly Manor and the Haunting of Hell House, and... There is a musical motif that starts in Hill House that they do use again in Bly Manor. That Ooh. yes, I noticed that as well. I was like, oh, mm. brilliant, absolutely. I don't know what that's. Is that the motif of love? Maybe it's a good. It's a, it's a good question. I mean, it's certainly one that you hear a lot as relates to characters played by Victoria Pedretti. Mm. Yeah, the music that they use in that is so so memorable, and I can pull it out instantaneously. But I don't think it's not like you know you mentioned Doctor Who, Callum. A big criticism of the olden days was that Murray Gold was very ostentatious. His, it's so bombastic that it's almost another character in and of itself, and it gets a little bit overwrought in places. But I think that Hill House and, and Bly Manor sort of thread the needle on that, of having those motifs work the way that they have to. And I think for the others, it's kind of 
I think he's just forgettable, honestly. Well, it's made by the director, interestingly. Yeah, I had seen that. I was wondering where they, who the sound director was. It's Mr. Amenabar, but it's not as overt. You mentioned John Carpenter, who I'm a big fan of. You don't have those very recognizable motif that you have in uh, with Carpenter. That's it. Yeah, I want every time N- Nicole Kidman walks into a scene, <laughs> like Rowdy Roddy Piper and they live, like, dun, 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 <laughs> would be amazing. Somebody just do an edit of that. Whoever's listening to this podcast and has a lot of time on their hands, which if you're in America is all of you, give that a shot. <laughs> I'd really love if the living playing the piano would be playing something much more, you know, <laughs> lively, like <laughs> some saloon tune or like, oh, my father. Who's that, Yeah, would be great. <laughs> What's this noise? <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, the reason that I pay attention to the music so much is for me, music is like a huge part of horror films. And there are so many. I think particularly Hereditary and Midsummer, both of them have wonderful. Uh... <laughs> Watch out! I know it's controversial. <laughs> oh, did you not? Do you not like Ariaster? I haven't seen it, oh! but I think people in the room really dislike Hereditary. <laughs> that's okay. That's, a, that's I okay. I don't. You feel free to edit this part right out. Uh, Hereditary <laughs> is the most overrated horror movie of the 21st century. It's bad, and, oh! and history is going to prove me right on this. People are going to look back and wonder why it is that people thought that Ari Aster was so great. I don't think it's bad. I think that it was overhyped. <laughs> I think that it was sold as something that it classroom, is not. Classroom, classroom. I mean, like, what it is. I was in a theater where they, where somebody came out because they were going to do a Q&A with Ari Aster and the actors, and they said, this is the best horror movie since Exorcist. This is better than Exorcist. Yeah, that was the, that was the line that was following it around, and it's not, it's, it's, it's not like Exorcist at all. It's a completely different genre and like story. I don't know what they were going on it about. It was a lot of business, but this is what happened. They came out and they said that it was top all of the greatest horror Maybe. movies ever made. And they named like that and Rosemary's Baby and okay. The Omen and all these things that I grew up really loving. Sorry. I'm conscious of time. I would love to divert on that. All right. Anyway, the point is that I, then I, then we had to watch the movie and I spent most of the time uncomfortably laughing and then had to listen to Ari Esther get filleted verbally by this Q&A person and it really soured me on Hereditary Forever. That the will end. happen. But the music was good in it and that's my point. I agree. <laughs> That was one good thing about that movie. <laughs> All right. So coming back to the others, is this a movie and why that you would recommend to tabletop role-playing games fans? I think I absolutely would. The same way I'd recommend any good film to anyone. I know people that I think this film would like inspire, like, but then I don't know many people who wouldn't have already seen it already. I think it's a really good basis for those of us who are into sort of the creepier horror side of TTRPGs to think about. I think something that's very interesting about this movie and why it ends up being sort of sneaky relevant all the time and in that way I think makes it good for if you're trying to do a tabletop role-playing game that's, you know, a mixture of um, escapism and catharsis, which I think so many of them are, is that when the movie came out, it was mid-August 2001. And it did very well. It made a lot of money in the United States. And I can tell you why that is. It's because... September 11th happened, and it was still in theaters, and people started going out in droves to escape 
from that because everyone was so overwhelmed by what was going on. It was something that had really, you know, for most people in the United States that did experience nothing like it before. Mm -hmm. And so there is this incredible irony because they'd gone for catharsis because, you know, I think a lot of people sensed that we were about to engage in a war eternal. And by that, I mean a war that we're still dealing with and the consequences of which we're still dealing with. And we went to see this movie that is a ghost story that is all about not forgetting about the consequences of war. <laughs> so it's, I find it endlessly fascinating that that is, it was there for escapism. And I'm sure that people got that. But if you think about it, you then realize that it's all kind of wrapped up and the parallels are, are there. And so I think that from that perspective, it's interesting to kind of look at the others from a tabletop role playing perspective and say, okay, how do we use a ghost story to cope with what we're dealing with now? I would definitely recommend it also, especially to game masters about, we're going to discuss more about that, but about information disclosure. And on one hand, the help, the staff, they're not very subtle, but for a tabletop role-playing game, it's quite appropriate not to be so subtle because you know, it's not scripted. And when you're a player, you might miss some clues. So in terms of how to reinforce this tension, there's a bunch of very good ideas and inspiration in there, which I look forward to us uh, talking about. But before that, Ellen, what do you think? You're a big of a Cthulhu specialist, oh. aren't you? <laughs> I just realized that I didn't even mention that I was involved in like, Cthulhu Dark and stuff in my intro. Would Cthulhu Dark be a good game to adapt this movie, uh, to replay it? I think it could be. Because I think that there's scope in this. I've been involved in like several kind of Cthulhu, Eldritch kind of games. There was one I was involved, it was called Occam's Razor. And it was a collection of scenarios where you would set the players up to think that there's like some terrifying cosmic horror thing going on and leap to conclusions. But actually it's something very mundane happening. And I feel like that could be a good system to look at this with. Because you might think, oh, what is it that's causing all these noises? What's haunting the house? And I feel like it would be an interesting twist to use. There's also a game that I, for full disclosure, that I helped to uh, do some sensitivity consultation on. And it's called The Curse of the House of Rookwood by Nerdy Pup Games. I seem to remember it's a GMless game. And you and all the rest of the players are members of a family in a massive house and you all have skeletons in the closet that you can like tag for different abilities and stuff and I think to play like a one shot of that where it turns out that you're all actually just ghosts in the house and that the curse is that you're dead <laughs> that would be a fun way to play this that's a, a lot of excellent references I never heard of so I look forward to go check them out <laughs> Danny this episode is happening because you tweeted. Well, it happened for two reasons. First, I listened to quite a few shows in which you are featured. And second, you tweeted that in this time of Halloween, you'd be keen to be invited on show. So I said, okay, I, I'm going to put on a show just, <laughs> just to have you. But I wasn't sure how much you are aware or interested at all in tabletop role-playing games. You seem to know quite a bit. Uh, well, I mean, so here's the deal. Me and tabletop role-playings are thus. I know a lot of people that like to run them. And every once in a while, they say, will you come and play them? And then I do. 
So, you know, I don't have a lot of books around the house, but I know what they are and I know how to play them and I know what makes them appealing. And, you know, if someone comes in and, and asks me to play, I like to think I'm a good player who, I don't know, like <clears throat> engages with the story that the game master intended to play and isn't one of those gamers that's like, I want to intentionally go far afield as far as possible and then get lost in the, the minutia of an argument with a random and like NPC for six hours. We all know this guy. We all know him. I'm not that guy. But yeah, I mean, so I kind of looked at some of the same stuff when I was looking through and I, and I thought, Hazard Rookwood, Crystal Hazard Rookwood makes a lot of sense. The one that you had brought up, Callum, which I'll, I'll sort of let you tackle. I thought it was kind of interesting from a Call of Cthulhu perspective is, do you play as the ghosts or do you flip it? I think that's something that I thought would be really interesting is, do you look at the others and say, all right, so we got the story of what's happening with Nicole Kidman and Nicole Kidman Jr. and other Nicole Kidman Jr., but we don't really know anything about this other family. Could you sort of use Cthulhu as a means to sort of explore the flip side of the narrative, the narrative you didn't get. So that was a thing that it kind of popped into my mind. As usual, it's a classic of film studies that I talk about games I don't know much about and most of the time never played. <laughs> but I was really trying to think, okay, what I think the mood was very important. That's what really worked in the movie. So if I was looking for a game to reproduce that, I would look into something specifically which achieves that. As soon as we talk about horror, I always think of Dread, but it's a bit too, I don't know, uh, it, it didn't seem fitting to me. Ghosts, when I started role-playing, uh, I had people who kept mentioning Wrath, the Oblivion, in which you play Ghost, as far as I know, but I don't know much about it. But making some research, I happened upon Ten Candles, which seems very appropriate to get you in the mood of the movie, which is a, a play with the light. Of course, it's more classic in the sense that it's the opposite. You go towards darkness with 10 candles because for people who are not aware in 10 candles, you play with 10 candles mm -hmm. on your table, 10 literal candles. And as the game goes on, you blow off one candle one after time. You pre-record some stuff that you replay later and this sort of thing. So it seems to be very, very atmospheric and appropriate if I wanted to do the others. And an honorable mention to Alice is Missing. It's not a ghost story, but uh, but someone who disappeared and you play with cell phones. I just wanted to mention that because I find the concept of this game very fascinating and I'm really chasing a, an opportunity to play it and I recommend people to go check it out. I completely agree with not using Dread, though. <laughs> Dread to be the whole Jenga mechanic. I mean, like, it's fine. But I do think it sort of suggests more that, like, there's something after you. I always feel like, like you know, like there's an element of a chase of the inevitability of death in a way that's a threat, mm. a threaty sort of thing. The tension is more front-handed than it is here. Yeah. Yeah, and Ten Candles is much more ritualistic and explorative of individuals' psyches. And I think the way to sort of thread the needle on the light versus dark thing, if you're willing to sleep all day, is that you just... You play it in the middle of the night. You start playing at like 2 a.m. Mm. And then you kind of like, as the lights dim down and the candles, the lights come up on yeah. the globe. <laughs> I was wondering if you could play 
reverse 10 candles and you light them as you go and you <laughs> raise the light in your room. But I think for this to work, you would need a very bright with white walls and this sort of things to really get the mood of uh, maybe have even mannequins with drapes over there <laughs> around you. So the more you see stuff in your environment, but we're talking LARPs when we describe yeah, that. I think I was going to say, so I played 10 Candles and one of the things that did surprise me about it, like in a practical sense, was how much light 10 Candles does actually give you and how much you notice as each one goes out, um, <laughs> assuming that your room is dark. So you might not even need a particularly strong light. I think it's also really interesting because I seem to remember that the main core story of Ten Candles is that you wake up and it's dark and like there are things in the dark and that's what you're trying to escape. So I think that ties into the whole light and dark theme that the others has. Yeah, I agree. I'm just saying that uh, if you're not willing to play this thing at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then you're not on my level. <laughs> but yeah, I do think that that's kind of like, like if you really want to go all the way, I think it's fun to have the idea of actual daylight coming up as you're finishing a game like this. And Halloween is coming up. So. It is. It's really a good time, I think, <laughs> to play this one. And yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, horror movies are, are swell and stuff and having, you know, like your Freddy Kruegers and your slashes and stuff is nice. But I like a mood thing. That's what makes this thing so good for <laughs> for tabletop is that it, it's mood more so than like just getting chased around by a guy with knifey fingers. Yeah. It's tough to deliver. And uh, actually, this movie might have ideas, uh, suggestions, teams that we can explore in Tabletop RPG to help us deliver such mood. So let's go into the next question right away. What are the things from this movie that you would borrow straight away for a game? Would you like a game master too? I think for me, it's definitely the backdrop of post-World War II or even still being in late in the war. I think, yeah, I mean, it's all the stuff that I said at the beginning, which is, I think you have to be willing to explore the historical context of the thing. Like, if you are armed with that information, then I think that you can use that to wield a really good story. And I think also something that I had not mentioned, but that they bring up for, what, a really brief moment, is that, you know, there was also, there was a pandemic that was happening just, like, around the time that the help had died. And I thought, well, if you, if you want to do influenza, if you really want to go all in and, and really live it like it's 2020, <laughs> you could go right ahead and take um, what was happening in 1918 as pertains to that and also bring it into the into the story. But yeah, I mean, it's that just that's the stuff that really jumps at me. Everything else is just is cherries on top is, you know, the, the ghost narrative and stuff is as well. But I think it's these things. It's interesting influenza when you see pictures or old news clipping to notice that there's a lot of stuff you never heard of till today, but then you realize that stuff which happening today are stuff which happened then. Yep. People were unwilling to wash their hands, to put on masks and all this stuff. So if you were playing a game set in that time, actually you would reproduce a lot of details which you don't really see or read about in history books when they paint a broad pictures, give you a number of victims until it started there, it ended there. All those details would be very contemporary. I'm a big proponent of history being explored with tabletop role-playing games, and I always regret how much, to a large extent, people refrain from that. For and There's a bunch of reasons which are claimed that might be sensitive, which is the best reason, I think. People feel they are constrained by history. I think there's also wrong assumptions. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ellen, sometimes... 
when I discussed I hear that the past is has no place for people of colors. I think that's a lie, which has been told to people. There were a lot of people of colors in medieval times, in the Renaissance and so on. So there's definitely a place to explore that and that it's constraining and so on. And like horror movies sort of helped explore some of the or real history, I find it interesting that in the end, the place where history is the most explored is School of Tulu with Reign of Terror, with Berlin the Wicked and, and so on. Or Harlem and Bond, which seems extremely interesting for people. Uh, they, they, could, they should uh, check it out. I mean, I like stuff that does um, historical facts. When I was in college, we used to play a role-playing game called Harn, which is almost like, like there is, they insert a bit of like fantasy and magic stuff, but it's very mild. It's really mostly just, it's just history. It's just a history role-playing game. Anyway. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Nephilim, which is a one I always bring up. For me, it's Nephilim is the game which does what Vampire should be doing and doesn't, which is you play mortal being. Oh, great. I'm playing someone who was around there in ancient Rome. Oh, no, you cannot play that because that vampire would be too powerful. And you're like, oh, so where, where, where have I been? Oh, you've been in the 80s. And you're like, okay, great. Um, <laughs> thanks. Uh, that's great to be so, so immortal, I guess. Yeah, I think the thing also, people think we know so much about what happened. And actually, there's a lot of blanks which you can explore, like, again, just across from here, Channel Islands. There's events there which are unexplored, untold, and and you don't know the details, you know, the, the personal lives and everything which happened over there. So there's a lot of room for you to explore. Helen, mm. was there something else you would pull from uh, the others? There were several things. I'm quite interested in the theme of religious devotion slash questioning going on, because Grace starts off the film very firmly Catholic and absolutely believing every single word that's in the Bible and teaching the same thing to her kids. And the kids repeatedly express that they don't believe everything that's written. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so funny. But um and then by the end of it, like I think she does say that she doesn't know if there's a purgatory or a or like an afterlife because if it turns out that they're dead already She's like, well, what on earth is it happening? <laughs> so I really liked that as a, a sub-theme throughout the film. And I think that's fun to play with. That was the thing with, is it Anne, the little girl? Yep. I was looking at her character. I was like, oh, she's going to grow up to be a strong, independent woman who doesn't believe in any of that. <laughs> and towards the end of the movie, I'm like, oh, no, she's stuck in hell with her mother. <laughs> she won't have a lot of opportunity to emancipate herself. Is she growing up? Probably not. She's a goat. She's going to stay in that, that state. Well, at least she, at least Nicole Kidman's character is not like excited about it. Again, if the others were set in America and this was some American person that had found out they were dead the whole time, they would be like, I knew it. Yes. I was right. I love being right about religion. Anyway. So yes, I think that that is, I agree completely that this idea of, how faith sort of fits into it. And that all, again, fits in a great religious way. What would be really interesting, I think, is, um, if you explored also, like before this podcast started, I mentioned, uh, we were talking about the miniseries V from the 1980s. And I mentioned that there's a certain degree of Jewishness to it. You know, there were Jewish people that lived on the Channel Islands. Oh, yeah. And I don't, I don't want to surprise anybody. They were treated uh, exceptionally badly. Mm -hmm. What was surprising to me is that, you know, they portray these people as being relatively Catholic. But that whole thing of like constantly turning off the power and denying people and not letting them even leave the house. So they were sort of trapped in darkness. 
That was the stuff that they were doing to the Jews on the on the Channel Islands. Wow. So I think that if I was to sit down and um and do the story and deal with religion as relates to this, I might also explore Jewishness as exists on the Channel Islands at the time and how a Jewish person would deal with this the situation yeah. of being dead. Especially with the actual name of the film being The Others and Jewish yeah. people being literally othered. I also had some like half-formed thoughts about the keys. Mm. Like It's a massive deal for them to close and lock every door behind them as they go from room to room. And I'm not good at rules. <laughs> I am very bad at chunky, clunky, uh, rules-heavy games. But I feel like there's something in the idea of needing the right key to get out of rooms and stuff as a mechanic. What happens when you lose it? And who has the key? And, you know, I feel like there's something there that someone who's better at writing rules than me could put together. I just like the idea that if you'd, you know, if you, you'd have to say it, I close the door and I lock mm. it. You know, even if it was as simple as that and you forgot, if you're the person running the game, there's a consequence. Mm. Yeah, and I love how, as this tension is building up, the stakes of forgetting to close the door are bigger, yeah. but so is the tension and the likelihood of you forgetting to mention that. That would work quite nicely. Actually, I know a game which is not horror-oriented by any means. It's more a universal system called Fantasy and Universal System. Part of the system, you lay aspects about the situation on the table on cards written, and some of them are negative, but they're negative for everyone. But you don't have automatically a, a mechanical disadvantage from this on the table. You only have it if you don't mention in your description of the action that you're taking care of it or doing something special about it. So, for instance, if the condition is into darkness, in your description, you must say something. Okay, my character looks over the hieroglyphs on the wall. You're done describing? Okay, you did not describe that you used a torch or something. You got the manners. But if the players themselves describe, okay, I'm using a torch, it brings those elements come to life in the game. And it works for the game master also if he describes or she describes something which is happening and doesn't say, oh, there's broken glass over. And I didn't say that my monster was jumping over the broken glass. Well, your monster is getting hurt by the broken glass, so... That's a somewhat simple mechanic in which you could have the door opening and closing thing uh, going on. I was a bit confused by the door opening and closing because I guess it's related to the light. I wasn't sure why it was happening, the closing and the openings of the doors, once you've got the twist and the explanation of the whole situation. I think it was to make sure that extra light doesn't get in so that no one can just walk in and like leave the door open. Because I remember there was a scene where Grace was opening the door, I think, to the junk room, and Anne says the light, the light's coming through, and so Grace had to, has to quickly go inside. So I think it's partly that, and probably partly Grace just wants to know where her children are. And I think maybe it's symptomatic of the fact that she wants to keep her children cooped up in a place where she knows where they are and what they're doing at all times. Yeah, it's just about control. She has no control yeah, over what's control. happening outside of the house, so she ends up imposing. I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting question. Did these children, when they were alive, even have this photosensitivity? Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know. I think the movie is purposefully vague. Yeah. They suggest that perhaps they did, but now that they're dead, they don't. But really, there's no reason to suggest that it's real. It's entirely possible that it's just a thing she told the kids that they were sick with, 
you know, almost like Munchausen by proxy and used that to make it so that they would never leave the house because of what was happening outside of the house. It didn't, doesn't really matter, but my own explanation was that just after they died, for some reason, the light did have an effect on them. I mean, I was even thinking maybe the light is was the thing, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel pulling them away to whatever is out there, the good place. <laughs> and that they were indeed photosensitive, not before being dead. They were photosensitive as ghosts in the early days of their new situation. But over time, they would get used to it. And that's why now they, they could be exposed to the light. But yeah, I might be, might be overthinking the <laughs> physics of what is actually going on. I think that's what I hinted at. I started thinking, okay, what's the situation now? And to me, I described it as being housemate. It feels like there's actually a whole lot of ghosts in that house from different generations. They're stuck there in somewhat perils. Mm. Like they would be on different floors and it's some of them is making too much noise. So if there's a living there doing noise, the others hear it, but they're sort of stuck together in this place. And I don't know, I didn't have time to rewatch it completely, but I rewatched just the beginning today. And I thought it was a kind of a matter of fact way to the three members of the staff, Berta, Edmund and Lydia, the way they're walking towards the finger. It's really like, I don't know, hands in their pockets, like, here we go. We're doing this again. We've been doing that for the 19th century. What was the last one? I don't know. It feels a bit like they've been doing that several times with several goals, you know, making the introduction. Okay. So you died here. Let me explain how it works. So don't freak out. And when they come, they're like, Oh, wow. She's one of them. She's one of those who really take it back. She's in denial. So there's this sort of, okay, well, let's see how we deal with the situation. They play a different game at the beginning, you see, mm. to choose which one's going to be mute. Which one's going to be the groundskeeper and which one's going to be the nanny? <laughs> you never know which version you're going to get. Maybe the groundskeeper is the mute. I mean, like, it really could go any which way. I think they just roll the dice and that's what they come up with. They're playing a tabletop role-playing game. <laughs> They're LARPing. They're LARPing. My theory was also that that's for you, Ellen. You don't have so many lower class ghosts because you would realize immediately that you're dead and there are living people in your apartment because it's so small, there's a street. <laughs> yes! <laughs> there's no hiding in this flat. I've got so this confusion <laughs> is mainly because you're in a big mansion with big gardens around it and you are alone there till it's being sold to somebody else. Mm. But otherwise, you confront it with your new situation. Like, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I get it. It's- <laughs> One thing, the children, I, I guess it's a bit taboo, but I never had a role-playing game with children involved. And yeah. again, Blind Manor and here the others. It's very easy to spook people with the children, children who are yes. a bit too smart. They, they find that things are just splendid. They're yeah, perfectly uh, splendid. splendid. So I wrote down, you can use the children as just like automatic NPCs that the people have to look after. I think that could lead to some interesting dynamics. I'd love to see players arguing about how best to address a child's concerns. (laughs) It's smart. And also, you know, just the thought, if if you said uh, we were about to begin our game, very quickly, you have two precocious children. (laughs) I'm instantly horrified. Very scary. (laughs) Worst nightmare. It's just... I'm just two episodes in Blind Manor. The first episode, I really didn't like the children. Like, not scared, but like... These kids are annoying. They sound like they're going to be prime minister of the United Kingdom. And that's bad. I will be interested to hear what you think. The accents of that. That's really the only criticism I have of Bly Manor so far. I'm only four episodes in. It's just that 
the American actors who are doing the accents are, uh, yikes, it's yikes on bikes yeah, for me. Yeah, some <laughs> of it's a bit weird. I don't know who plays Peter Quint, Oliver something something. Yeah, who played Luke in the, yeah. in the Hill House. His Scottish accent is the worst. Okay, I look forward to that. Well, maybe we'll do a, a film study about Bly Manor. <laughs> but he is English. So and yet. In, in my head, and yet. if you're from these islands, you should be able to do a better impression of other accents than if you're American. But um, <laughs> I didn't know that. I'd assumed he was American. and it <laughs> well, was English people can often do very good American and accents. Armed with that, it's even more... It's so, it was, yes, it's very, that's the thing is that sometimes when he's doing the Scottish accent, I thought he was slipping back into his American accent. That's what it seemed like to me the whole time. <laughs> this has got nothing to do with this podcast. I'm very sorry, everybody. But it really, boy, like it just, it really t- tore at my poor, my poor psyche. I was like, this is very, even if I'm American and I knew how bad it was. I'm lucky to be somewhat oblivious to that. Today, someone pointed out that the pub in the first episode, it's clearly an American bar and not a pub. And I was like, oh, I did not notice that they had pints. It was fine. I didn't think that. You see? So, approved by Britain. I will tell this uh, Americo-German friend of mine that she was entirely wrong. To me, it looked like one of those pubs in London where it used to be someone's old house. And that's why it's slightly weirdly set up. Yeah, it seemed fine. With like the bar starting... A couple of feet inside the doorway, that kind of thing. I, th- I thought it was fine. <laughs> Danny, you mentioned in your the application of teams and ideas to tabletop role playing game disease as a limitation. Ooh. Yeah, I thought that was just because they happened to mention obviously that the kids potentially have an illness, and yes, and they also talked about influenza briefly. And I thought, well, you know, I think that it's always interesting to sort of sit down and say, like, what is a thing that you can incorporate. And if you have to avoid the light because of a disease, then that does in fact add, just like we were talking about with the making sure that you lock the doors. Yeah. I I love limitations in gameplay mechanic. Like that's always the most important thing or for me, the most exciting thing to explore. It's not the stuff that like makes it so you can pull off a slick roll on something. It's the way in which you know that your character is going to mess up and that it's going to take you down into a place that you can't control. I think that's what's so interesting about tabletop role-playing games. So, When I read it in all notes, uh, I thought uh, you meant something more like, there's more and more discourse, which I think is welcome, about disabilities in tabletop role-playing games and the way they're played or portrayed. I recommend people to go check out the combat wheelchair, which is not fitting for the others, but... Uh, the author Mustang, who's been uh, one of our guests, she discussed uh, her condition and the way she approached role-playing games uh, due to that. So I-, I thought you meant something like playing a character with a disease in that sense or a disability of some kind. Oh, you could you could certainly do that. Um, I would. That's. I mean, so I have uh, Crohn's disease, and it's a thing that you know, if I sit down and and play characters, it's sometimes like. Interesting to sit down and say, well, I have this condition, which is kind of invisible. How would I incorporate that in? I would recommend at the Sam Wisest on Twitter, they do a number of, they have a number of characters that they play that I think really speak to that particular idea. Thanks. You know, talking about the sort of, of discourse of tabletop roping game, I've heard quite a few tabletop RPG discussion podcast going very hard against plot twists in role-playing games and uh, 
and surprising your players with things, which is the conclusion of this movie and what you would do in a game. You say, oh, oh, turns out you were a ghost all the time. <laughs> Personally, it's the sort of thing I like. I can see how it could be poorly played and come wrong to some players, but like projects I had was, what if I introduced new players to Vampire the Masquerade by not telling them they turned into vampires? I started like, I don't know, mm. True Detective or something like that. And then at some point, I build it up. I say, oh, you got some hunger or some things. Their smell is especially strong. And then, oh, it turns out you become a vampire. I think the problem is often it's been used in an antagonistic way. Like you're making fun of your players. Yeah, I was about to say, I think that Poxus are really, really good. I really enjoy it when I suddenly turn around. I'm like, oh, it was this all along. I really like that surprise. But that's, the thing is, it's called a plot twist. You shouldn't be putting something into your game that is going to affect your character and, and player. Like, you shouldn't be able to suddenly turn around and be like, oh, you're a vampire, because then that's something that your player is not in control of, and it really pisses people off when you do things to them, like, to their, to their characters without them agreeing it. It's what happened in this movie, though. Mm, well, all right, so here's what I would... Let me Let me counter that just for a moment. I think that you have to view the role-playing scenario the way that you would view a movie in that, you know, we talked about M. Night Shyamalan and how, you know, sometimes his twists are, that's it. Once you know the twist, the movie's ruined. Once you know it, why would you even bother watching it? If somehow you decided to listen to this podcast and you found out that they were ghosts the whole time and the others, it would not, in my opinion, harm in any way your ability to enjoy the movie. That's my belief. I think that if you know that, Maybe you, there's something you miss out on, on that, like, aha, first time viewing. But I don't think that all, you know, like, I've watched this movie many times. I know how it ends. There's so many other elements that are there that are intriguing and enticing that you learn each time you watch. I think that oh. tabletop role playing is the same thing. If, if the thing is going to come up and twist and it's like, it's going to somehow ruin it, where like everything before was irrelevant because of the twist. Yeah, it needs to matter. Then all of a sudden it's like, then what was the point? And then why did I do all of this other stuff? You know, it, it, so it needs to sort of be a thing that adds, doesn't subtract. And I think that's really all it boils down to. I think you're absolutely right. Doesn't make your agency irrelevant. Doesn't make the action you did irrelevant and you know whatever you would have done turns out it didn't matter because Mm. twist yeah it shouldn't take their choices away yeah i think the only other thing about twists is that you know how well do you know the people that you're playing with that's the other big thing that's the other thing because you don't want to throw in a twist that's going to trigger somebody yeah i think that's the other big part of it you need to know your table in any game, for all reasons, you should know your table and what they're going to... Yeah. I think especially in that case, though, you want to make sure that you've got that at the ready, you know. You want to be able to ask at least a certain number of questions so that you're not going to do a twist that, yeah, is going to make somebody have to crawl out of their skin and go hide away for a couple of days. And, you know, I've certainly been in games where, where the person running did not do yeah. that adequately. I've probably all been in those games. We did not discuss that. We had some disclaimers regarding the content of the movie mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. topic we would discuss in this episode. I'm tempted to say it's obvious, but uh, it's <laughs> on a daily basis. I find out it's not obvious to everyone. Running anything akin to that movie would require the use of proper safety tools. 
Mm-hmm. and trust and listening to your players and have open conversations regarding a, a number of topics. Everything we listed should be uh, on neural lines and veils for people who are maybe not that familiar with that sort of thing. So, so before the game, you have a discussion, you have a, a list of things you say, okay, lines are stuff which won't happen in the game. So in this case, I don't want any kind of abuse of children. Okay, stick there. It's in your lines. It won't happen. It won't be mentioned. In the game, we agree on that because it would trigger one of the players. Or or maybe you say, okay, uh, it's very important for this story and this game I'm running. Next week, I will be running something else. But this game won't be appropriate for you for that reason. Because for all reason, it's important to this one. A veil is, okay, we agree that violence against children could happen. But it's not happening in front of the players. Yeah, There yeah. are references that it had happened elsewhere out of the action there are references to past events or that it might happen in the future but it's not happening and described in details it's just mentioning something you read in the newspaper something you don't see on screen the big classic is is in old movies or more recent ones a couple goes to bed together they are very in love with one another (laughs) (laughs) they're going to bed together apparently very merrily the camera pans to an alarm clock. The hour changes 15 minutes later and pans back to the couple in bed. 15 minutes? Oh, 15 minutes! With the man smoking a cigarette. You've been a little too honest, my friend. Feel free to go back and do a second take on that if you like. That's the kind of things you see in Hotshot. That's the level of my summaries. <laughs> That's the level of my jokes. But yeah, people, go check. I mean, there's so many podcasts and good documents which will explain much better than I do what lines, veils, X cards are, and they are very important to play any kind of horror content, if not any role-playing game, really. Yeah, I think there are some games you can probably... No, actually, no. should probably have a discussion about them in every kind of game. Well, recently I found out about CATS, and I don't remember what it stands for. It's an acronym, but I found out that the game I'm developing is more appropriate for CATS than Lines and Veils. But that's besides the point. Yeah, there's lots of different systems for it, yeah. Have you used any Lines and Veils and X-Card in your games, Danny? So I don't run games, but the answer is that, yes, people who have run those games have, have done those things, yes. Great, good practice. Maybe I'm missing something. Is there anything you want to add, Ellen? It's a good film. Watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Use the Christopher Eccleston character more than the movie did. If you're going to make a role, because yeah. like you know, like that's a whole thing. I didn't write down the notes, but I'm realizing now is that uh, you know, war. But is it good for? But uh, but yeah, I mean, just you know, there's the post traumatic stress of that, and uh, and what it is to to come back to the Channel Islands yeah. and like, that was the place that didn't get protected. You know, it's, it's very, it's sort of in that similar vein of like why Vietnam War vets came back and were, you know, shamed and treated badly. You know, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to go off to war to try and protect people. And you find that the only real part of the UK that like was completely abandoned was the place you're from. Just the way that that would impact you. Yeah. I think it's a great opportunity to explore that in a tabletop role-playing game inspired by the others, which was not covered in the actual film. It's really gruesome, the idea of his ghost is coming back to his home. So somehow he manages to find his way back to home. He ends up there, and then he's so 
traumatized by his experience. It's like, actually, I still belong to the front. Yeah. It's still happening there in this ghost world. So I'm going to go back to the front and relive my experience there. Like, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't take off his uniform. If, if he does, then he wears clothes very similar to his army uniform. He takes off his coat. But he's yeah, you see him, like, there's like a bed scene, right? Where they, yeah. where apparently they go and they span up to the clock and it, yes. it moves 15 minutes. <laughs> the, and the then he's gone. He's alarm clock. Yeah. 15 minutes later. <laughs> That's it. And then you hear the TARDIS warp and he's gone. <laughs> Done. Um. Sorry. <laughs> I always have a soft spot for Christopher Eccleston. I always have since I saw him in, oh, there was a film where these people in a flat find a load of money. Tour the Dark World? No. <laughs> um, it was called something Grave? Shadow Grave. Oh, okay. Oh, he was I in Shadow think, Grave. I, I didn't realize that, that. I'm going to look it up quickly. I love Christopher Eccleston, but uh, I haven't seen him in many things. Uh, apparently, he took a break, and uh, I hope, you know, people have somewhat later careers which are uh, thriving. So I hope it will happen with him. That would be a thing. I think it seems to be very talented and dedicated to the craft, but uh, sadly he had some bad experiences. Yes. I think it's very interesting that he was, that he was a soldier of one type and the others. And then the following year, he's again a soldier and 28 days later in as far a role as you could possibly yeah. do. Uh, the reason you might not recognize him in Shallow Grave is because he's wearing a massive pair of glasses. Just the biggest 90s glasses you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good movie we should do it in film studies well, at least I, I remember it as a good movie it's not very much discussed about so I think that's it are we good uh, yeah. for this one Yeah, I think so great <laughs> well thank you very much to the class for their participation today Danny I always keep that for the very end my being a bit of a fan I really enjoy listening to the show you participate to, and I'm thankful for you to being here tonight. I think podcasts are helping a lot of people cope with not having social interaction yeah. at the moment. It's very intimate in a way. I especially like your interaction with Todd Nettinson. And, uh, you know, when you listen to a podcast, you wish you were in the room to take part to this uh, cool conversation. It feels like it, but you're not able to react. So I'm very, very thankful for not only your shows, but accepting the invitation and allowing me to directly interact with you for a little bit. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> of course, it was wonderful. I, I, I love getting a chance to talk about horror stuff and, and tabletop role-playing. I've never done a podcast on the subject before, so thank you for having me. Maybe more in the future. This show is recorded for the RPG Academy as well as the Release Podcast. You can find the RPG Academy on Twitter at the RPG Academy. The Rollist, I won't spell it because it's long, but you can find it in the description of the episode. We do all of this for the love of the hobby, but we do have expense. So if you want to contribute to either the RPG Academy or the Rollist Podcast uh, through Patreon, you are very, very welcome to do so. And it helps us to do even more stuff. I'm definitely doing a lot this month. There's bonus content there. So please go check it out. Helen, can you plug everything you do? Don't miss any game and say your goodbyes uh, to our listeners, please. <laughs> Main thing I'm doing right now is the Rusty Quill. I've just been taken on like as a proper employee part-time with them. So I spend a lot of time with them. They're a really good podcast. You will have heard of the Magnus Archives. That's probably the one of the most interest because it's the horror fiction one. But they make two others. One's Stella Firma, which is 
sci-fi improv comedy in which two people who hate each other try to build planets. Then there's the one that I'm in, which is the Rusty Quill Gaming Podcast, which you will be interested in because I assume that you like tabletop role-playing games. Really long-running campaign. (laughs) And uh, we're playing Pathfinder. And I don't know how to describe it. It, it, In some ways, it also becomes a horror. Uh, (laughs) But it's a, a comedy horror, maybe, we would call it. But if you want to follow me specifically, I'm on Twitter at Electo101. That's A-L-E-C-T-O-101. Awesome. Danny, last but not least. I do podcasts that you can check out. I think eventually I'm going to get back to doing my Star Trek Voyager rewatch podcast that is called The Delta Podrant. Yes, it is embarrassing on purpose, which I do with comic book writers and novelists Vita Ayala and Danny Lore. I would recommend that podcast to listen to them, not me. And of course, I do Song versus Song with Todd Nathanson, uh, where we discuss two similar songs and pointlessly argue about which one is superior. Um, once again, I would not listen to that for me. Definitely check that out for Todd Nathanson. Both of them have Patreons. If you want to support them, please feel free to do so. I am also on Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow me there at Danny Ordinary. That is Danny with one N, Ordinary also with one N. <laughs> you two are insufferable because on one hand I've got, uh, oh yeah, the Rusty Quill but the real deal is the Magnus Archive <laughs> and on the other side i got Songs vs. Song but the real deal is that you're, you're both wrong. The Rusty Quill is awesome and so are you, uh, Danny. <laughs> so, thanks everyone. Check us out soon. I've got another film studies already recorded which I was supposed to edit before this one about Black Cats, White Cats from Amir Costa Rica so it should come at some point. And yeah, see you soon. Bye. Thanks for having us. Bye. Thank you. Bye.